when I was in the legislature, there was only one thing that I was absolutely sure about politically. I knew for sure that I did not want to be mayor. You know, it turns out, frankly, that there are many more people than you would ever imagine who at some point lying in their cradles as, as babies, their mothers, maybe their fathers leaned over and said, one day you will be a great mayor. And these, all these little babies have heard that. And so there's a much greater demand or interest uh, among people in being mayor than you would imagine, especially among city council members, especially among city council members who are in the legislature. And I knew from that experience that that was the last thing I wanted to be. Historic Edgefield, historic Waverly Belmont area with your monster houses that are selling for north of a million dollars. You're good. You're good. What we can't allow you to do is pull the ladder of economic opportunity up from the generation that comes behind you. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to do something. Welcome to PBN. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter.com or Blue Sky at Braden Gall. I'm Jamie Hall, and you can follow our show on X at Pod Bless Nash or on the Instagram at Pod Bless Nashville. The theme of the show today will be, and I'm quoting you, my dear co-host, Jamie Holland, small incremental steps using proven strategies that work. We've got a potential bill at the state level that could address some mental health issues, maybe even uh, touch on some firearm issues. We've got, uh, there's a potential non-binding ballot initiative around what what plant? God's plant. God's plant. Amen. Uh, and, of course, we've got a ton of housing news as a bunch of bills, a suite of bills, as they call it, has been filed with the Metro Council and uh, the debate that you have been alluding to, Jamie, around the housing crisis in this city that is going to take many, many hours and many days. It's going to be hard shit, and it's beginning. And so we will discuss those bills, sort of the purpose of some of those bills, give you guys a preview of that, of course. And our guest today was a big part of changing housing in the city a little while ago, if you're new to Nashville, late late 90s, early 2000s, former mayor Bill the Purcell. The 1900s, Braden? The yeah. 1900s. The 1900s. That's right. We had a mayor from the 1900s <laughs> on our show. That'd be the 20th century, I believe. We had a mayor from... I'm not sure how much he would love this introduction, by the way. Mayor Bill Purcell, of course, a huge proponent of affordable housing, uh, will be our guest today on the show, and a brilliant blend of being very competent uh, self-aware, self-deprecating, and and also convicted, I would say. Are those the right words to describe the former mayor? Sound like he'd been doing some criming with the word convicted. I'd just call you, it. But you believe in what you believe in, and you stand up for what you believe oh, in oh. With, with a stiff backbone. I mean, I'd call him a political genius. So lots of stuff to do today on the show. Make sure you swing by on Tuesday morning. This is out on Monday. If you're listening on Monday, come out on Tuesday, February 6th which is the first Tuesday of every month. Where, Jamie? The Charlotte location of 8th and Roast. 8th and Roast, our primary partner and sponsor here on the program. Make sure you swing by any of their locations on, of course, 8th Avenue, Airport, West End, Vanderbilt, 
But yes, the first Tuesday of every month, that is coming up on this Tuesday. So if you're listening on Monday, we'll see you tomorrow. We do appreciate you early listeners. We do appreciate you guys. I'll uh, be there at 8. But we'll be there 8, eight to whenever we're done. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> we'll, buy, we'll buy as much coffee and breakfast sandwiches as possible. Oh, you're that? buying some coffee. No, I said we. <laughs> Oh, I said we. First five, first ten. I uh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, we'll TBD. See. TBD. But we'll we'll do some support of of both the local business and the community and those of you listeners who want to show up. Are we gonna we'll have any swag? Do. We have some small items. <laughs> small swag. Small items potentially for for you avid listeners. So come on out. Of course, the first Tuesday of every month at Eighth and Roast, and make sure you also, as a reminder, you can get their beans all across the county, all across the city at grocery stores near you. But quick reminder, make sure you check the local section. Some grocery stores have a local section of items that are produced by local companies. I know the grocery store that I shop at does not stock Eighth and Roast in the coffee section. They stock it in the local section, which is pretty cool that the local grocery store I have, which is a massive multinational corporation, has a great little local section there for local companies. That's where I get my eighth and roast. Pro so, tip yeah. from Brayden. There you go. So quickly, uh, Purcell, I, I, I can't wait for people to listen to him. For those that do not know him and his personality, I, I think he's a great blend of all the different characteristics that make someone a good politician, I think, as you alluded to. But he was a, he was very instrumental in developing downtown as a residential area. And housing is going to be a big part of the show today as these bills have been passed to try to adjust some of our uh, housing situation here in the city, but quickly, our stories are tied directly to Mayor Purcell. Uh, I moved into a condo downtown. It was the first home I purchased, piece of piece of land, I guess, for lack of a better term, even though it was 634 square feet, about nine stories above the ground. Uh, I was a low-income buyer. 20% of the building I moved into was low-income, and the only reason I have been able to establish any equity in my life as someone who was making, I believe the number was $36,000, I believe. You had to be, you had to make less than that to, to qualify. Uh, and then there was a five-year rule on who you could sell it to. And so I stayed there for six years, of course. <laughs> Met my wife, sold it. We moved in and, and of course, had to had to upgrade size-wise as family was, as little, little kids were coming. But ultimately, the reason that that building had 20% affordable housing, which a term, which is a term that has been completely weaponized and is not necessarily understood is because of Mayor Purcell putting in place rules, regulations, incentives to bring residents into the downtown area. And I was one of them. I looked in East Nashville, couldn't afford anything in East Nashville, even in 2008. And, and I paid, I think $141,000 for a little 630 square foot apartment. It was about 60% of my take home pay. And I was house poor for a few years, but it was the best decision and most important decision I ever made. And it was largely due to Mayor Purcell's policies. The mayor provided you a home. Good job, Mayor. <laughs> uh, my personal story there, I, I bought a condo in 2007 in East Nashville for one sixty nine I don't believe there's a product on the market in East Nashville that you can buy for one sixty nine nine. I looked at it recently. It's currently property assessor appraisal. Reminder. By the way, elections are coming up. <laughs> reminder. Early voting starts February 14th. Election day, March 5th. That's, that's a really special day for all Nashvillians because early voting starts on February 14th. Correct. But I, 2007, Jamie Holland could not 
moved to East Nashville today, and maybe people would be proud of that to keep me out. But that's stupid that now prices are orders of magnitude higher than that for entry-level home buying. Because why? Because of our we're still relying on a 20, 26th anniversary of the 1998 zoning code. Check my math. Are there. we going to have a party? There's no way it's 26. Maybe it's 26. Help me out with the math. January 1, 1998. Strangely enough, Bill Purcell became mayor right after that. And what did he do? He start started requiring developers downtown because he wanted residents to move in down there, requiring 20% of those new developments to have affordable home prices. Well, we've let it go on now to where prices, home prices in East Nashville have accelerated an 80% jump over the last 10 years, and nothing's happening except people are selling, listing their homes now for a million dollars. Well, what's the corresponding effect downstream? That is the people that work in Nashville or work for the metropolitan government, that 60% of employees do not live in this county. I think I've explained on prior episodes that that certainly does not work in our schools. Most, if not all the principals in Davidson County schools don't live in Davidson County schools. I know that's true in high school. Most teachers don't live here. Most police officers don't live here. Fire don't live here. I want to live in a community where the people that work here can live here. That's the way you truly build community. Instead of having this service industry come in and then leave. Like we have to be able to live together. And the only way to do that is start making small changes the NIMBYs are already out there. The, the cake is baked in their favor already. Just explaining to you this morning, how does a zoning bill, how do these bills become law? The process gives the incumbent homeowner an opportunity to say no about something that does not apply to their fucking property. It applies in their neighborhood. What you do at your house, Braden? does not affect me in any way, shape, form, or fashion. The only thing the opponents have to sell is fear, and the proponents have to sell community with others. All right, so let's, this all, this is, you're, you already jumped us off into sort of this suite of bills that has been put forth by Quinn Evan Siegel and Rollin Horton, and th- this is a, there's nine different bills. We're not going to get into all different ones. We're going to have a much more in-depth episode about housing in general, but I think it's it's important to sort of reiterate what is at stake and sort of what the implications are of this crisis in general, which I think everybody acknowledges is a problem. The average, the medium home price in Nashville right now is what? Anywhere from five seventy five to $585,000. Okay. So if we want neighborhoods that are self-sufficient and are community-based, you need to have all the people you're talking about living in the community and you have to then provide housing, whether that's low income, middle income, you have to have a variety of options for all the different neighborhoods. And frankly, there are a variety of different neighborhoods in Nashville that will require different approaches in terms of how to address some of these issues. And there's, a again, you can, Jamie, if you want to call out some of these eliminating minimum lot sizes and multifamily districts and permit housing by right and commercial districts, like we can get through all that at a later time. 
But ultimately, the point of this is to stop the urban sprawl from going from urban to suburban and then suburban to rural, right? We want to maintain three different types of lifestyle, for lack of a better term. And the way you do that is by building more density in and around the city as quickly as possible. And there's other, there's other things that influence this, right? Uh, whether it's creativity, small business development, economic development, crime reduction, there's lots of other things that can happen when you add density, not the least of which, of course, is a major transit referendum potentially coming in November of 24. It all has to work together. We're growing every year. People want to be here. That's not changing. But also the young people that live here, they got to be able to afford a place to stay. And the track we're on, the situation only gets worse. In 2015 mayor's race, the number one term on the lips of every politician was affordable housing. And since 2015 to now, nothing has been done on any scale to address that problem. The Barnes Affordable Housing Trust Fund, it's great, Braden. It makes you feel good. And those, those people that were beneficiaries of that program, I'm extremely happy for them. It's life-changing for them. But from a policy perspective, it's only something that makes your heart feel good. There's not enough scale to make it happen. So we have to do it in other ways. And these nine steps, the, the suite, as you call them, are just those small steps moving that needle just a little bit. And we have to be able as a city to walk and chew gum at the same time. Encouraging more types of housing, getting the private sector invested in building more middle income housing. Obviously, you've talked a lot about reforming the zoning codes there. Uh, it also allows the city to focus on some of what I would call like the, cri the more crisis elements of the housing conversation. Affordable housing at the lowest level probably is the one the city can do the most about. I, look, I, I think it's great that like 900 units of affordable housing are going to be put in the first 30 acres of the East Bank development. That's a drop in the bucket when we're supposed to be around, and I, I don't want to call exactly, but 5,000, I think, is the estimate of need per year, uh, give or take. We're 50,000 behind right, right now, right, today. Right. Um, which you want your kids to be able to, when they graduate high school, go off to college, and if they want to live back in Nashville, do you want them to live in your bedroom, or do you want them to be able to afford a place to stay on their own? I certainly don't want them living in my bedroom. <laughs> Samezy. Uh, they're they're set minor seven and five and lovely and come down on Saturday and Sunday mornings to to, to hang out with mom and dad. Um, but historic Edgefield, historic Waverly Belmont area with your monster houses that are selling for north of a million dollars. You're good. You're good. But what we can't allow you to do is pull the ladder of economic opportunity up from the generation that comes behind you. It cannot happen. Uh, otherwise, the path we are on without a transit referendum and without housing reform, the path that we are on is Atlanta, where everything that you feel, car dependency, pedestrian issues, lack of transit, uh, expensive urban housing where folks don't live in the neighborhood, that is going to be in the suburbs. It's just going to keep going. It, the sprawl is just going to keep happening. And it's going to come to all those districts that are outside of the downtown area 
and I, I think we've had council people on the show explaining that, that that's going to happen, uh, that it's going to come to their district. So uh, th- everyone should be invested in solving the problem the correct way at the right time. And again, we can debate the merits of each one of these nine different bills on, a, on an episode a little bit later on, because they're all, some of them are deep in the weeds and minutia. Some of them are more broad, but like we, we can get to those at a later time. But generally, I think we all agree on, on the crisis. Let me just say this for a rural suburban council districts on the edge of the county. If there's notions of like, oh, we don't want that stuff coming out here. Fine. It's not. It's literally not. And to suggest that any of these bills would is a misunderstanding of not only zoning, but also reality, the absence of infrastructure. Like nobody's running water mains and sewer mains and all that stuff way out in the suburban areas. It does not exist. So it's not happening. It's called, as the kids say, cap. What, what is the what's the implication if we do nothing and the sprawl continues? Though we do end up at like Atlanta, that does change the districts, right? That that's right. That changes the neighborhoods. Oh, like if you want to be more like Brentwood, which we're going getting closer and closer to, then let's keep the laws the same. You mean across the whole the whole county? You're saying that's right. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Well, it leads us to how do how do we get all this big stuff accomplished? We talked a little bit about the chaos of, of all of these big issues sort of hitting us 2024 being just a very intense year when it comes to federal state local elections it's just a lot of stuff for people to to sort of deal with and it leads us to sort of i don't know what the right phrase is here but how to organize the workflow on all these big issues and it does seem like part of the new council and the mayor's office and this whole Titan stadium thing and the East bank development, like that we need, we've said this on the show before, we probably need to organize this a little bit better and, and figure out the workflow a little bit better. Well, I, I think we have it in as much as the council's taken on housing, the mayor's taken on transit. And then I got some ideas for the East bank because that's sucking up the bandwidth of the planning department. You got right? some ideas. I Jamie got Holland has ideas. I got an idea. You care to share? Well, <laughs> typically mayors over the course of time have stayed out of Title 17, a.k.a. zoning matters. It's like because that is the prerogative of the local legislative body. And when I mean prerogative, I mean the actual power that's in the council is zoning. They're the final authority on it. And so they can run that ball. The mayor's office wants to do a transit referendum that requires council approval prior to it going on the ballot, but he can be the cheerleader for that. And planning's involved in both of those. They need to support each other and work together. Right. But there's some intra-governmental hiccups along the way that is sucking a lot of energy out and that's the East bank. And what would be ideal there is if some sort of authority could be created locally to let the experts and the pros handle the East bank. Because one thing you're not going to hear the public get upset about is a bureaucrat complaining that they don't have enough time to get their job done. Well, if that's the case, if transit and housing are big issues for the city, and they are, let's let our people do that. And the East Bank can be outsourced, if you will, with inputs 
From I was going to ba- say, I was gonna say who, would have, who would have control over this hypothetical authority? With inputs, of course, to take this off the plate, because it, even we've had District 5 and District 6 council member had a community meeting over the East Bank where a bunch of fucking blue hairs come out and are complaining about parking. I don't want to hear your complaints about parking. And there's no reason to even activate NIMBYs on it. That East Bank vote, Braden, that case is over. It's closed. It's here. Stop relitigating it. Case lost. Appeal deadline passed. I'm not saying it, it's that, coming. I'm not saying that that counsel or oversight isn't warranted to just glance at things as they get passed through. We don't need to rubber stamp everything. But the but it's already been passed. It does feel pretty simple here that the council needs to lead, be the tip of the spear here, of course, on housing. They're starting to do that. The mayor's office needs to support that because the mayor's office is going to have to turn around and get the council support on the transit. And all of us in the community will benefit from both of the things taking place. The East Bank is, I mean, we are talking four mayors, maybe five mayors, depending on how many terms they all serve. Uh, we're talking... 550 plus acres where we're only talking about the first 30 right now. It is, it is such a gargantuan project. I'm not even sure how the metropolitan government can do it all by itself. Now I would like to see the metropolitan government have some level. Can I say authority of the, over the authority? Like, again, we just had a couple of lawsuits about a bunch of different other authorities here, the airport authority and the sports authority where the, where the mayor's office has the power to appoint the members of the board but you're going to, you got how many different construction companies have a bid right now? <laughs> Development or isn't it like 14 different companies already have a contract with the East Bank, something like that, or negotiating for a contract with the East Bank? I mean, Bank? contracting companies are making bids all the time. The, the, the most expensive time consuming process and all that is infrastructure. And that's under the ground. It's the and front I, ends. That's, and, just, that's the shit plant. And I sure don't want, you know, NIMBY motherfuckers from Edgefield weighing in on that. You're not even going to go over there anyway, unless they have, you know, senior parking. Well, that that caused the fucking problem in the first place. No no matter what happens with transit, we already kind of know that the referendum itself will be a small incremental step using proven strategies that work, right? That's right. And these nine bills are using small incremental steps using proven strategies that work. 60% of government employees living outside the county is embarrassing. Well... That should be humiliating to everyone. And, and Mayor Purcell is going to allude to my children's elementary school on accident later on in, in the interview. But the majority of the teachers that I know at the school and the administrators don't don't. There's a handful that still live in the in the neighborhood because it's an old neighborhood school, but not nearly as many as we would like. Um, that is, that's for sure. Small change is steps. coming, Braden. Small incremental steps using proven strategies. That work. Okay. Uh, that brings us to, and again, a much larger conversation about housing coming up on an episode very soon where I just get to turn Jamie loose. That's what's going to happen. We're going <laughs> to talk with a, a proponent <laughs> of these bills. Uh, do you want to talk quickly about small incremental steps using proven strategies that work about mental health and firearms? Real quickly. There's a bill in the Tennessee General Assembly. Let's call it the Jillian Ludwig bill. That in its current form, I say that, Braden, because a lot of people get apoplectic about bills when they get filed. 
Well, there's a process along the way, and bills get amended. A lot of fucking birds pecking at that thing. <laughs> Words get changed. Input gets received and say, hey, that's a good point. I'm going to change this. But what it would be do is if you're declared mentally incompetent to stand trial, the person like the person that killed Jillian Ludwig, then you're going to not be returned home and say, well, tough shit. We can't do anything. Instead, they're going to be required to enter into mental health treatment. And according to the fiscal analysis so far, it's going to cost a little over a million dollars a year. Well, is it going to be before the budget? Is it going to be in the budget? Is it going to be after the budget? Who knows? Even after the budget, I would expect it to get funded and paid. the Ludwig family has been meeting with the governor, meeting with legislators. It was addressed vis-a-vis a bill in the special session, but don't forget, Senate did what it did. Tape table. It took it off the table, yep. but it's back on the menu now. So uh, looking at the, the text of the bill, if a person who has been found incompetent to stand trial in a criminal proceeding person who has been charged with a criminal offense and found incompetent to stand trial poses a substantial likelihood of serious harm prohibits the purchase or possession of a firearm by a person who has been adjudicated as a mental defective that's from the the bill itself Uh, and as you mentioned 1.18 million dollar fiscal note on that bill as well so again it's a small step cannot purchase a firearm cannot have possession of a firearm but also treatment at again those are very very small items but i mean i guess they're steps in the right direction um, and of course you've got, I guess it's one house bill, 1640 and Senate bill 1769. If you want to look those up, those are numbers, Jamie. Thank you. Very I'm allowed much. To, I'm allowed to do the numbers part. Thank you very much. <laughs> so small incremental steps. How old is the 1998 zoning code now after January? <laughs> is it 26? Is it 2024? Is that what it is? Is it 2024? 26 years old. I have to use my fingers to do years. You and, know? and what it did was create a lot of wealth for very few people are you back on housing now i'm just okay. saying if you if somebody's coming here and asked me so jamie why why'd you agree to do a podcast because we got a fucking housing problem and i have a limited range of utility considering my age <laughs> and it's the one thing that keeps me up at night it's not my likable and affable personality that, that led you to want to hang out with me every week uh all right a couple other here's another quick note here brought to you by eighth and rose this is a bit of a headline drip uh normally here lawmakers this is in the tennessee journal lawmakers press for non-binding pot referendum on the 2024 ballot this is of course uh Repres- god's plan representative jesse chisholm and uh senator akbari both memphis democrats of course teaming up this year to press legislation that would require tennessee's 95 county election commissions to hold non-binding referendums on the legalization issues this fall. They would touch on three non-binding yes or no questions they would put forth to voters on the state's 2024 ballot. Number one, should the state of Tennessee legalize medical marijuana? Yes. Should the state of Tennessee decriminalize possession of marijuana of less than one ounce? And number three, should the state of Tennessee legalize and regulate commercial sales of recreational use marijuana? These are largely popular issues in the state, much like some of the other issues we've talked about on the show. Uh, but can you tell people quickly that the non-binding referendum, 
what these representatives are accomplishing is essentially to gauge the pulse of the voters here. Is this, uh, it's not, it's not a glorified poll question, but like if it goes on the ballot and we vote on it, and it's non-binding the, the the state doesn't actually actually have to do anything, but it does give us a very clear picture of what the people in Tennessee want. There's a notion amongst lawmakers that God's plant being legal in the state of Tennessee is not what causes someone to go to the polls and vote. And so this is a way to per- give a proof point to say, yeah, everybody's for it. Might not be their number one factor, but they're for it. And if you're a liberty, freedom-loving person <laughs> like I am, then there's no way you should not allow God's plant to be used legally to help the people put it here to help uh, the state multiple states across. We've talked about this before on the show. Multiple states across the country have legalized it over the course of the last few years. I think Michigan and Ohio most recently. Uh, state of Washington is about the same size as Tennessee from a person uh, from a population standpoint, and they've raised I think five billion dollars over the last six or seven years. So you're talking about billions of dollars in tax revenue. And the only reason, just as a quick reminder for folks who who may disagree with this. The only real reason that marijuana is a Schedule One narcotic, which Schedule One narcotic means there is no redeeming value. There is no medical quality to the particular narcotic. The only reason anything gets put in Schedule One. In this particular case on marijuana, it is misinformation and racism. That is why marijuana was a Schedule One narcotic in this country. And th- that needs to, is being fixed across the country slowly but surely. So not only does it have medicinal properties and qualities, it is significantly healthier and better for you by every medical conceivable measure than alcohol. And oh, by the way, we can raise billions of dollars in tax revenue. There, it, this is a absolute no-brainer. No-brainer for the state of Tennessee. And if you're also a freedom and liberty lover <laughs> like I am, that also means... You don't want people telling you what to do with your property. So if your neighbor wants to build four houses, four structures on their property, shut the fuck up. That ain't your property and ain't nobody going to be parking in your yard or your driveway. So don't worry about where the people park. Not in my neighborhood, Jamie. Not in my neighborhood. Don't worry about where they park. Ain't on your property. I, I'm a big personal liberty freedom guy. I like I like all those things. Those are all real good things. Uh, okay, well let's uh, let's talk to a gentleman who had a lot to do with housing and how it's changed and how the city is being lived in. Uh, the mayor from 1999, elected first and then reelected in 2003, was in the state house before that. Was a well, majority house leader uh, at the time uh, as a Democrat. Mayor Bill Purcell. Here was our conversation with the former mayor. Mayor Purcell joining us here on the show, coming into the studio. We do really appreciate your time. Thank you, sir, for coming in. How are you? I'm great. It's good to be with you all. I, I want to start really broadly. We always start very broadly, and then we, we'll narrow into a lot of different things with you today on the program. But I want to start very broadly with sort of your opinion of Nashville. Um, it's changed significantly over the years. Everyone always talks about it in these sort of vague terms about old Nashville. I have new friends that live in Nashville that ask me about old Nashville, and I try to explain to them what it was like. What is your perspective on where we've come as a city over the last 25 years since you were first elected in 1999 as the mayor? Well, I think Nashville is in a very good place overall. I think Nashville, in most ways, is at the top of its game. 
And I think Nashville has a particular strength and has had throughout that period, which is it has a pretty clear sense of what's right and what's wrong, what's going the way people would want it to go and the things that need additional work. I think one of the great strengths of Nashville is that broad consensus about what's important now, and that gives me hope for the future. Have you met with our new mayor? I have. And how do you feel about his prospects of success? I feel good about the mayor, and I think the mayor is in a good place. First of all, I think the mayor was uh, is the beneficiary of a campaign that allowed him and us to have a pretty good understanding of both who he was and where he was and where he wanted to go. I think he comes in with uh, that kind of uh, public understanding, and so far, I think the public... Uh, understands each of the things that he's undertaken to do. Uh, you're still early. It's still a relative honeymoon for most purposes. But I think at this point, uh, he's pretty much where he said he would be and appears to be headed in the direction that uh, that he set throughout the campaign. You served on MDHA. Is, is that still current? I am. I'm the chair of the board of MDHA. All right. So how much housing affordability is an issue with that board. It's a giant issue. It's a, it's an issue with that board, and I think it's an issue with the city at large, and I have to say it's an issue in every successful city in America today. Uh, when I became mayor in 1999, I was in a meeting with the mayor of Boston, Tom Menino, and he said, housing is going to be the issue for every big city in America. Uh, it had not been a significant part of the campaign for me, but I came into office with that in my mind from Menino. And as you will recall, I established the first uh, mayor's office of affordable housing that, that Nashville had ever had uh, very early in my first year as mayor. Uh, because we knew, not just because Tom Menino told me, but at that point it was beginning to be pretty clear that without uh, action by the government and collaboration with the private sector, uh, that we would uh, be impeded in our ability to move forward. So that Mayor's Office of Affordable Housing, as you know, began the process of of producing housing that would both uh, involve the private sector and then ultimately inspire the private sector. Quick statistic, just at the top, when I became mayor in 1999, there were exactly 900 people living in the core of the city. We had been more successful than any city in America in moving people out of the city. We, within that core, there are now fifteen to 18,000 people where there had been 900, probably on the way to thirty or 35,000 people within that same core. But even as we expanded housing and showed the market that people did want to live in the city, uh, we assured in each and every one of the, of the projects that we were involved that 20% of what we built or the, or the private sector built with our inspiration and help uh, would be affordable. And that was the commitment 20, now 24 years ago. And... Um, I hope and believe that the city will continue to understand that this is a critical, central issue, not just to the American dream, but to the success of the city. In the council, there's recently been nine bills filed to address, let's call the inadequacy of supply of housing. Have you looked at any of those at all, heard about it, news no, accounts? No, I really haven't. But I, I understood that there is a, a an understanding, especially among this the members of this new council, uh, that housing 
which has been front of mind for the last couple of councils. Make no mistake, I think both the, the mayors and the council over the over recent years, the funding of the Barnes Fund, for example, but other examples as well, and certainly even Mayor Cooper in his discussions of the East Bank repeatedly stressed the need for there to be residential housing in a space, whether it's 338 acres or 558 acres, the largest space probably in any American city that close to a downtown. So the potential is great. The understanding, I think, is shared. Uh, and the opportunities, as you're suggesting, are right in front of us. Let me let me go back to the, the moment that you're sort of putting all that stuff into place for Nashville uh, as part of the core. And I personally was was a beneficiary of that of that situation. It seems like most people think that this stuff is popular today. What what was the, how much pushback, how much support? You kind of alluded to some of the the, the parties that were involved when you guys were doing all that stuff. Like, what was it a hard sell at that point? And doesn't it shouldn't it be much easier today? Does that make sense? It does. I mean, first of all, in terms of what happened at that time, uh, I was uh, very active in in uh, both establishing that mayor's office, but then in also sharing broadly about the the critical need for us to have housing for the future, that we had to have a place for our librarians, our police officers, our firefighters, for your kids, my kids, um, that for the future there had to be places. And I think uh, that at that time there was an understanding of that, and to answer your question directly, no uh, pushback at all. Uh, we were very clear about it. Uh, we want people to live in the city. We want people to live in this city, and we want people to be returning to the core of the city. Uh, frankly, good for them and good for the city, because without people in the core, as you will recall, Lower Broadway was mostly adult entertainment. Most people went home as soon as their job was done. And without residential housing and people around, the city wasn't going to be successful. So I, I will I will say now what I said then, which is uh, we're, we're not going to make you do anything. But if you want the help of the city in terms of uh, uh, tax increment financing, for example, or infrastructure support, we're interested in helping, but we're only interested in helping for residential, and we're only interested if you're going to make 20% of that affordable. If you're not interested in helping and being part of that, then uh, it's a it's a free world. You can go and do what you will wherever you will or wherever you can. But if you want that help in the center, then that's what we're going to do. And we put affor- in that way, we put affordable housing on 2nd Avenue. We put it on the Mumbrim Street. We put it on the Stallman Building, rental apartments up across from the courthouse, the Viridian there on Church Street, and then 5th and Main. It wasn't all directly in the core, but 5th and Main now here in East Nashville, you, you go down Main Street and begin to see the private sector realizing people want to live here. They want to live here now. And so I think um, that experience, certainly over the next eight years, from 2000 until uh, I went out of office in 2007, but continuing on in 2008 when the Great Recession hit, uh, there was, a, there was a, a lot of support and, and no real pushback. Before becoming mayor, you served in the House of Representatives as majority leader. What difference then in state versus local relations in, in comparison to now, and what's the solution? Well, I, I would have to say that in the 10 years that I was in the House, uh, there were plenty of uh, opportunities for people to um, to deal with the issues that mattered at that time. Uh, and. During that 10-year period, there were only two bills on one day in which all of the Democrats voted one way and all of the Republicans voted the other way. And it wasn't the budget, uh, even redistricting. Uh, there was, I can't say everything was was uh, proportionally uh, um, bipartisan, but again, 
only two bills on one day passed with a strict division of the legislative body, DNR. And, and that reflects, I think, to a large degree, the way in which folks saw not just the larger state issues, but also the relationship between the local governments and the state governments. No question that there were folks who lived in the country uh, who uh, either didn't fully understand, fully appreciate, or necessarily uh, have a need to care about the particular problems of the city and vice versa. But that said, we understood, I think, across the body that we needed each other, uh, that if we didn't need each other today, we need each other tomorrow. That the problems that we're dealing with in the city now, if they weren't dealt with, would end up somewhere in the suburbs or out in the country. And the needs of the country, if not met, would mean that the city didn't have the, the, the land, the agriculture, the, the things that come from, from a distance. Uh, and, and that's the way we approached it. Now, I was the first majority leader ever elected from a city. So I, I, I straightforwardly say to you clearly that there had been a, uh, a, a some might say a power imbalance, some might say a, a preference for Certainly it wasn't that long before I got there that Baker versus Carr had for the first time given people uh, the same representation uh, that, um, that cows had had before. But it was absolutely clear to me as a majority leader from the city that, yes, I had an obligation to my district here where I'm sitting now in East Nashville, but I had an obligation to also meet the needs of Weekly County and Lake County and Sevier County and, uh, and Mountain City. So uh, that was a broadly shared, I think, opinion. And that's not as clear today. Well, I was going to a- ask about your decision then following that role because, and, and I want to, I hate the old two-part question here, but this is what we're going to end up doing because I, there was some not uh, speculation about your decision following that, going running for governor perhaps. You chose to run for mayor instead, coming from a state level, going back to a metro situation. We know Freddie O'Connell, of course, came through a different path coming from the council but with similar backgrounds, similar lifestyles to get to the mayor's office. So number one, why did you decide to go mayor instead of something else, pursuing a different path? But then also, what is the most difficult part of that transition? Then the first, your first hundred days, something Freddie's gone, just now gone through. Well, in terms of running for mayor, I, I can tell you it was a kind of an epiphany. When I was in the legislature, there was only one thing that I was absolutely sure about politically. I knew for sure that I did not want to be mayor. I was surrounded by people who wanted to be mayor. Many of them were also in the city council. And when you left the Capitol, it, you know, it turns out, uh, frankly, that there are many more people than you would ever imagine who at some point lying in their cradles as, as babies, their mothers, maybe their fathers, leaned over and said, one day you will be a great mayor. And these, all these little babies have heard that. And so there's a much greater demand or interest uh, among people in being mayor than you would imagine, especially among city council members, especially among city council members who are in the legislature. Uh, and I knew from that experience that that was the last thing I wanted to be. I, they would say, you should be mayor. And I'd say, oh, no, you should be mayor. You'd be a great mayor. And move on. After I left office in 1996, I was consulting with uh, states around the country on children and youth issues, trying to help them understand what we had done and done well and what we were well regarded for in that space. And it simply came to me, as, again, sort of as an epiphany, which was I was wrong. I was wrong and had been wrong all along about this. That Actually, if you cared about people, especially if you cared about kids and families, and that was my special and particular interest then and now, that the place where you could make the most immediate and direct impact on those people were as mayor, was at the local level. 
as a state legislator, I I passed a bill that was signed actually in your neighborhood in Rosebank Elementary School. I passed the I was the prime sponsor of the Education Improvement Act. It was signed at Rosebank Elementary School. We had the governor there signing the bill. We had the lieutenant governor there. We had the leadership of both houses. We had Democrats and Republicans at Rosebank Elementary School. And in that bill, we mandated a reduction in class size. Project Star, which had been begun under Lamar Alexander, actually established that you did better especially K through three, if you had less kids in the class. And we knew it, and we put it in the law. And fast forward, I walk into my own daughter's classroom, then Buena Vista Jones Padilla Magnet School, and there are too many kids in the class. And I say to the teacher, there's too many kids in here. She said, I thought so too. I asked the principal, and she checked, and she said, no, no, there's not too many kids in this class. I said, well, that's fine. You're the teacher. Have a great day. I went to see the principal. I said, you know, there are too many kids in this class. And she said, uh, I thought so, too. The teacher told me that, but I called the central office, and they said, no, no, there's not too many kids. Well, if you're the majority leader, one of the things you can do is you can get a meeting fairly quickly with the senior leadership of the school system. And I met with them, and I said, there is a law that mandates class sizes in these classrooms, and there are too many kids in my daughter's class. They said, well, there's a law. We know that law. And they said, but uh, it is not uh, a mandate. It's simply kind of a yardstick. I said, you know, I sponsored that law. And <laughs> in fact, I invited you all to Rosebank Elementary School where we signed the bill. You remember that? Oh, they said it was a lovely day, a wonderful occasion. We have lots of pictures of it. It was a great day. I said, so as the man who passed the law, I, I'm telling you, it was an absolute mandate. There's a, there's a kind of a safety valve if you jump through all kinds of hoops, but none of that was done, and, and you, there are too many kids in the classroom, and I assume there are too many kids in other classrooms. And they said, well, you're just wrong about that. And I said, you know, I'm a lawyer too. And they said, we have our lawyer here. And I said, well, thank you very much. I wrote a letter, which you could do in those days, to the attorney general. And I said, is this law a mandate or is it not? And there, you will find in an attorney general's opinion from the attorney general of Tennessee, written to the majority leader, Bill Purcell, Tennessee House of Representatives, and it says, compressed, one page, it's a mandate. But I will tell you, when we first reached the correct class sizes in the schools of Nashville, it was, guess what, after I became mayor in 1999. If you want to make a difference in the lives of kids and families and people and neighborhoods, and that's what I think is most important to me and most of us and I think to the both of you, uh, you, you, the mayor can do that, has a greater ability to do that than anyone else. And so I, having realized that, said to myself, you should try to be mayor. And, and, and the ability to say I was wrong also a really underrated skill set in general in humanity right now. The, the story about mothers looking in the cribs and seeing the mayor, <laughs> I first read about that in a news article, and I almost fell out of my chair. I certainly picked up. Uh, spit up my coffee because it was in the context of Ronnie Stein is when that story hit and I thought it was a great line I, I reached out to certain people that worked for you that day and they said that might be the most public dragging you've ever done since your term as mayor ended <laughs> Uh, is, it, is it time for commercial? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, how about this? You can answer my other question, which is what's the hardest What's the hardest part of the first getting acclimated to the job? Right. The, the, again, the thing Freddie's doing right now. Uh, I, the, the hardest thing in the first 100 days is the hardest thing for the whole time, whether it's four years, eight years, or, you know, lately it's been a little shorter. Somebody said to me recently, mayors are kind of like subway trains in, in New York. There's another one along in a minute. <laughs> but I, But whether it's 
a, a short period of time or a long period of time, the hardest part about being mayor uh, is talking to everybody at the same time and having them hear you. Uh, it's not easy, and it takes constant attention. First, to get all their attention, and then secondly, to they don't have to always agree. They're not always going to agree with you and, and you with them, but at least have them some sense in them some sense of where you're headed and why so they can say, hey, I, I, I knew about that, and I'm okay, or I'm not. Uh, and I think in that context, again, Freddie is doing what a new mayor should do and has to keep doing, which is stay out there with people in the whole big city. Uh, it's easy for the mayor to forget. Most Nashvilleians forget that there's you know, 533 square miles inside the city limits, the county limits. Boston, Massachusetts, same population as Nashville, 700,000 people, is 48 square miles. Now, one of my heroes, again, is Tom Menino, the former mayor of Boston. And when he left office, 60% of the people in Boston believed they had met him personally. And because he was there so long, perhaps they did. But the sense that he was out and they, he knew them and they knew him was critical to his success. And I think that will be the challenge, continues to be the challenge for this mayor. So far, I think he started just right. The reason I know that is so many people say, well, he's going too many places. He's seeing too many people. He's not you know, spending enough time in the courthouse. As soon as people start complaining about that, you've got a pretty good sign that he's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. Well, I'm curious, when you passed the bill for reduced class sizes, majority leader, you said it didn't get fixed till you become mayor. Was the director of schools the same person when you were majority leader and when you were mayor? No. No, there was a new... How long after you became mayor did that get straightened out? I think we, my recollection is that we, <laughs> we took care of the funding of it in the next budget. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing with the mayor. The mayor doesn't and shouldn't control the school system. I mean, mayors are experts in a bunch of things or become experts in a bunch of things, but about curriculum and that sort of thing, they, they are not. But in terms of how the school should be, how the school should run, I, no reason you'd remember this, I had campaigned saying, I will visit every school in my first year. And so now I'm elected, and we're going thing through the list, as a new mayor should do. What, what are all the things I promised to do during the course of this campaign? And very close to the top of the list was visit every school in the first year. And so we got to that, and I said, um, well, how many schools are there? <laughs> and my education <laughs> assistant said, well, I don't know. I said, well, go call the school board and see what they say. So he went out, and he came back, and he said, they want to know how you would count them. I said, well, you know, <laughs> that's a good first sign. <laughs> I said, you know, I, I just got here, but I was kind of thinking one, two, three. And when you get to the last one, you'd know how many schools you have. So he went away and he called him back and he came back and he said this, and I'm quoting him directly. He said, they say, if you count them that way, there's 129. And I still don't know what other way there is to count schools, but I said, well, if there's 129, we better get started. And we did. And we visited every school in the first year, and then I visited every school again, and I visited every school three times at least and made 550 school visits in the next eight years, which was my way of not just checking on them, which I was, but also sending a message to them and, and to the kids that this matters. So fast forward, I can tell a story I've never told before. About a month ago, I'm in Big Al's Deli in North Nashville. And Big Would Al's, you call it Germantown or Salem Town? <laughs> I think it, I'd call it Salem Town. Okay. Uh, I'm in Big Al's Deli, and his son is behind the cash register, and he looked at me, and he said, you are my mayor. I said, I was. He said, you came to my class. 
I said, I probably did. He said, you read the Pledge of Allegiance. I remember that. I said, well, you're kind to remember. But the impression that it, all these years later, that, it, that one kid, that the mayor came, the mayor came to his school, and it registered with him that he was important and the schools were important and, and. So I, I think um, that's, that's, that's what you have to do if you're going to make the case that it's important. And certainly schools were important to me and still are. That's a good segue. Food, Mr. Hot Chicken, Hot Chicken Festival. How you get that going? Well, it's the last, basically entering the last year of my time as mayor. It's 2006, and we're going to celebrate the the 200th anniversary of the city of Nashville, our bicentennial. We, you know, and that's a people. That's a good year to remember. 1806 is the year when we looked at each other, the folks that were here ahead of us, and said, "You know what? We were right. This is the place. We're going to make a city. We're going to incorporate ourselves, and we're going to be here for forever, if we can." And so, 200 years later, we're going to celebrate that fact and that reality. And we sat down as a staff in the mayor's office and said, okay, what, what shall we do? So, well, first, each month we'll celebrate something unique and special about Nashville. If we'll have a music month, we'll have an arts month, we'll have a, a faith and, and religion month to celebrate the things that are uniquely special about Nashville. And, it, of course, at the end of that came to, well, how shall we conclude? And someone, everyone, said, well, we should have a festival. We'll have a festival. And everyone agreed. And then someone said, what kind of festival should we have? And about this, there was absolutely no immediate response from anyone. And everyone looked at me. I was the mayor. So I guess since I'd agreed to have a festival, I must have some idea about this festival. And I said, well, I'm pretty confident we should have a hot chicken festival. Now, I only learned literally last year what happened next. Well, I saw what happened next. What happened next is everyone said, what a great idea. What a, what a brilliant mayor you are. Of course, that's exactly what we should have. And they, what I learned this year is they walked out into the hall and said to each other, that is the single stupidest idea he's had. There's a lot of things we didn't agree with, but this is not a good idea. This People haven't eaten hot chicken. They're not going to, some people could be hurt. We're not sure. And this will be the last piece of whatever legacy we have in this mayor's administration. And it'll be a disastrous finish. Who's going to tell him? And it turns out, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed that they were not, one of them was brave enough to come back in the room and say, you know, we think we polled and we believe you've lost your mind altogether and that we should have something else more normal they didn't they didn't and we went straight through and we had a hot chicken festival and on that day uh, which was you know again toward toward the the last part of my time as mayor it was honestly among the happiest days that i had as mayor not because it was better than some expected but because i looked out as i have most every year since and and the city's there Everybody's there, not 700,000 people or 570,000 people, but North Nashville and South Nashville and West Nashville and East Nashville and every kind of, everybody, they're just there. And that first year, a lot of them, it's true, were having hot chicken for the first time. In fact, we gave out free samples because there were so many people that said, well, what is it? I never had it. And they lined up, like 500 people lined up to get free samples of hot chicken and then it, so, you know, who knew what was going to happen? Maybe they'd get in the car and drive right home. But instead, they came on in. They had a festival. They enjoyed each other. They liked being around each other. They liked being involved with something that was uh, uniquely ours. Well, and So we've done it every year. The 18th uh, Hot Chicken Festival will be this year. Well, we all know what happens after um, the Hot Chicken Festival. <laughs> Do you have a good GI doctor recommendation, by the way? Because <laughs> I, I am 
I'm alarmed at the amount of uh, the sheer amount of hot chicken you've consumed in your life. I'm, I'm worried, actually. Uh, no, I think once a week is. I, I'm, I'm obviously I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, but I think once a week is uh, is the right amount. It is true, however, and I don't know that they still sell this shirt. But Prince's Hot Chicken for a long time had a shirt that said Prince's Hot Chicken on the front, and then on the back it said, "And you thought it was hot going in." <laughs> Everyone's got a story too when they bring a person to Nashville and they 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 walk in with a lot of ego, and they go. Oh no, I'm going to try that. And, and then you, you see the, the kind woman behind the desk. So say, honey, why don't you try the medium first and then come on back if you want some more, <laughs> if you want to try the hot. You know, I, I had a, uh, in my first term, I had a scheduling meeting and the scheduler said, uh, Prince Charles's uh, girlfriend's son wants to meet you. And I said to myself quietly, Prince Charles's girlfriend's son wants to meet me. I said, um, no, I don't see any reason to do that. And she said, well, he wants to eat hot chicken. And I said, I'm in. Set it up. Let's do it. So his name is Tom Parker Bowles, and uh, we scheduled a lunch at Prince's Hot Chicken. And the, the story's important to me uh, because he wrote about it. He was writing a book called The Year of Eating Dangerously, and he'd eaten baby eels in Wales, and he went on to eat super hot peppers in New Mexico and insects somewhere on the face of the earth. But in the midst of this research, he wanted to eat Prince's Hot Chicken. And so there we are on Ewing Lane at that time in a booth. And he said, I will have the extra hot. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> oh, he said, I'll have the extra hot. I said, no, 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 no. Look, look, it's a hot chicken shack. It's not an extra hot chicken shack. Eat the hot chicken. That's what I'm telling you. No, no, no. And I thought, well, Prince Charles's girlfriend's son, I guess he can pretty much have whatever he wants to have. So go ahead and have it. And he did. And the reason this is all important is what you said a moment ago. He wrote in this book, it's one of the few times anyone has ever written uh, the words, the mayor was right and I was wrong. So that sticks with me. I can remember it very clearly. He wrote that and he described how his neck began to constrict and his eyes began to run and fluids began coming out of... Uh, uh -huh. Anyway, he talked about all that at some length. So I, I think... Um, well, that, that's a long way of saying I, I think the hot chicken is what you should have, and that, that's enough. Yeah. I, I do find that the story itself, the origin story dating back 75 years before your time uh, as a mayor, it's tied to basically the every part of, of Nashville's growth. It's, it's tied to segregation. It's tied to redlining, zoning, housing. It's tied to the Urban Renewal Act. It's, it's, it literally, you can, and now, of course, it has been exported to every other major city and major chain restaurant. Like, it's, it is... I don't know. I think people kind of chuckle when they see hot chicken on menus around the country and it says Nashville hot chicken. And uh, I don't know, it just, it represents, I think perfectly sort of the entire story arc of the city of Nashville. If you know the entire story of the history of it. I think you're exactly right. And there's, it's available now today in Vancouver, Canada. I've seen it there. It's, I've had uh, folks from Finland send me pictures. There's two restaurants in Bangkok, Thailand called Foul Mouth, which is Nashville Hot Chicken, Sydney, <laughs> Australia, Singapore, and as you said, all across America as well. Howlin' Rays in uh, in Los Angeles is a, still people line up out in front of that place. And I think you obviously, have, I hope and believe I, I'm hearing you a little bit channel Rachel Martin in the book uh, 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 hot, hot chicken, a Nashville story. It's a terrific story of, as you say, suggest, of, of Nashville and hot chicken and uh, our past for sure. And one hopes our future. After your term ended as mayor, you, you went to the Northeast, right? 
I did. What did you do up there at that IV tower? Well, I, I went up, <laughs> I went up uh, in the fall of 2007 to be a fellow at the Institute of Politics. I came home uh, to do something that uh, President Milton Johnson at TSU had asked me to do, uh, which was a terrific honor. I started a, a college of public service and urban affairs at TSU and spent that year of 2008, most of it at TSU, and, and then, as you are suggesting, was recruited back up to, to the Institute of Politics. Uh, the Institute of Politics is a, is a unique place at the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, and it's unique because the president and his family believed that he had learned as much in, in his undergraduate years from the people he met as from the courses he took. And so it had the great advantage and opportunity to, to invite people in for young people to meet and, and uh, test, if you will, and experiment the programs aren't graded. There's no attendance requirement, but you have a chance to meet a wide range of people. So it, it was a it was a great experience. Uh, I was up there overall um, in total, I suppose, three years. But I honestly, it, it's very cold, and and they have like 400 years of experience with it, and it sort of rolls off their backs a little bit. But it was very cold, and it never got. It's just very cold. So I came home. You're the only person I know that's lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Mississippi. Well, you know, my mother, it's true, was born uh, in the South. She grew up in Faraday, Louisiana. Uh, my mother, Mickey Gilley, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, and Jimmy Swaggart uh, all grew up there. And what they have in common is that they all left there. She went to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, it's true. And, and I'll put a plug in, if I might, for uh, Temple University, because there weren't many places in America that wanted to hire women or anything other than white men, anybody other than a white man. HBCUs obviously filled an important role in those days, but by and large in much of higher education, and it was, it was male. But they were interested in expanding programs for women in, at Temple and in, and in the region. So uh, they offered my mother a job, and she went to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and um, that's how I came to be born there. Tell the folks what you're doing now, Mayor. Well, I'm practicing law. Uh, that's a, the, the beautiful thing, uh, as you know, counselor. Uh, it's a it's a, a, a profession that you can carry with you if you keep up with it. And I'm sitting in a studio now that has pictures of some of the great and glorious successes of uh, of Jamie Holland in the courts of of Tennessee. And there's great joy in helping people in that way. Uh, and I enjoy it now. And so I, I'm a, an attorney with Frost Brown Todd. I teach at Vanderbilt. I teach undergraduates, which is a great joy for me. I teach about cities in the fall and in the spring. I teach about public advocacy. The notion there is you, you've studied, you've researched, you know what to do. Now, how do you convince people to do it? Something that I think both of you are both interested in and obviously involved in as well through this podcast and other ways. And then I chair the board at, at MDHA. Mayor. Thank you for your time, and we do appreciate you coming in. Thank you. I appreciate you all. Keep up the good work, or at least keep working. <laughs> Thank you. That was Mayor Purcell, Mayor Bill Purcell. We really do appreciate his time. I Truly, Jamie, I don't understand how you can eat that much hot chicken. I just don't. As like a human adult, 41-year-old male, I don't know how that's possible. But I'm glad he did, and I'm glad he did a lot of other things. Our oldest office. loves hot chicken. Hotter the better, but the day after he knows <laughs> what he calls spicy butt.
<laughs> There's an entire South Park episode dedicated to that. Go check it out. <laughs> Uh, Chipotle away. Uh, no free shouts. Eighth and Roast, of course, is our primary sponsor. Make sure you swing by. If you're still listening at this point, you're probably coming out tomorrow on a Tuesday, February 6th. Come hang out. Eighth and Roast, first Tuesday of every month. It's our first gathering, so we hope you get. We hope, we hope we see you there. Uh, come on out, of course, and uh, I'll probably buy you a cup of coffee. Yes, I'll probably do that. Rate, review, subscribe, of course. I guess I had to buy my own because I'll be there at eight. Yeah, well, yeah, I won't be there. I got Dude, I got school drop-off. I got to drop off kids at school. I can't get there by eight. Uh, okay. So make sure you come out any of the other locations as well. You got eighth and roast on eighth Avenue. You got eighth and roast in the airport. So if you're in and out of town, make sure you swing by there. support local. Of course, you've also got a location on Vanderbilt over on West end. You can buy the beans in almost every grocery store in middle Tennessee, and they are just better. They're just better. It's a higher quality bean. It's a higher quality product, more ethically sourced, uh, so make sure you you swing by and check out the local section of the grocery store as well. A lot of times it's not put in the same section as the other, you know, big coffee, you know, big, big, uh, big bean, big bean gets there a special spot in the grocery store. Make sure you check out the local section if you can't find it, uh, because that's where they that's where these grocery stores support good local businesses like eighth and roast. Who are you rooting for in the Super Bowl? Taylor, do you think it's been rigged? Do you think the NFL script writers did that good of a job? When Travis Kelsey started dating Taylor, the owners <laughs> had a meeting with Goodell. We need to expand our audience. And he said, we need more money, So in our more ne- engagement. Women participation in National Football League is dropping. We've funded girls flag football across the country, including at Williamson County Schools and Davidson County Schools. But it ain't enough to move the needle. We're putting Taylor's team in the Super Bowl. <laughs> it's Taylor's team, not not Mahomes or Kelsey or Andy Reid or it's Taylor's team. What I find fascinating, for, first of all, I, my my New Year's intention was to listen to more Taylor, not because I necessarily love the music, but because I think she's a critically important piece of the future of this country. Yes, I don't I don't think that's hyperbolic. I actually think she's going to be an incredibly important person. And judging by the reaction that she has gotten from a particular cross-section of the media, I think I'm right that she's a pretty important person of our political conversation moving forward in this country. Now, here's what I think is utterly fascinating. You're the sports ball guy. I'm sports ball and national politics guy. That's neither of your, you just, all you care about is historic Edgefield. What I what I find utterly fascinating, you tell me because I to re, note to listener, I do not live in historic Edgefield. I know you don't. The policies around that place is ones that created the problems that we're suffering from now. Can I continue? Go on. Okay. So here's ultimately what I find hysterical about the far right media like fever dream around Taylor Swift that she's like a whatever some special operative of the government or whatever whatever this bullshit is. Can, can I ask you just from a political shrewd standpoint, do you think it is intelligent? Purcell was here and you didn't ask him this question. Go on. Do you think it, I would not bother him with this kind of question. I just b- waste your time with this kind of question. Do you think it Taylor Swift and the National Football League, two things that are by and large incredibly popular in this country. <laughs> Do you find it to be a shrewd, intelligent political maneuver to attack football and Taylor Swift and to demonize football 
and Taylor Swift. Do those sound like winning strategies to you? I can already see you're going to weave this in the, the dash. No, guy. no, no. I'm asking. No, this is actually nothing to do with that. I'm just saying in general, do you believe it to be a smart political strategy to attack football, America's pastime, and Taylor Swift, arguably the most popular human on the planet? Well, I already learned a couple of years think? ago, once Pence left the Colts game, that football was dead. Like After that, National Football League. Nobody was, knows what you're talking about. It was over. I'm just no, saying. No, it's I'm, fucking stupid. <laughs> I, 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 sometimes I, 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 I don't understand. I don't understand. I like, do not want to be adverse to the National Football League or – Taylor Swift. It's no, probably losing, in reverse order. Losing, like, I don't want to be anti-Taylor. You are going to lose both of those fights in this country. I like you women, Braden. I like Taylor. I like women. I like football. I, most humans check all those boxes. No. Even if you don't like Taylor's music. She's an incredibly talented human. She, she it, it's not, see... I think you have to go well beyond the talent of the music and everything and, and the draw. It's I like, wasn't talking about her music. You're talking about uh, her business, bringing Republicans and Democrats together, bringing generations of different people together, right. bringing men and women together. Br- yeah, I, I agree. Different cultures and countries together. Uh, there's no question. Her when power I see girl dads on my feed on X, <laughs> thrilled that all of a sudden their daughter is now interested in watching a football game and spending time with their father. Like, that, I like that. That was That's all. Good. That was all operative stuff. It was all deep state. That got that that happened. The deep state put Patrick Mahomes into the Super Bowl again to make sure. I, I don't know. I don't even know what they they're claiming is. It's just it's so. I, a lot of times I can understand differences between conservatives and progressives. It's easy to understand the differences. Why someone might think one thing and somebody might think another thing on a particular issue. Hey, I I like my life is a little bit more this way. Your life's a little bit more this way. It's sometimes it's very easy to understand someone else's perspective. It's very easy in this particular case. I do not understand <laughs> anti-football, anti-swizzle. I don't get it. Well, I don't get it. It seems like a losing strategy to me. So. You know, the the founder of the notion that the NFL operates on a script is VFL Arian Foster, right? I, I, I don't care to know that, but I didn't, maybe I'm wrong. I didn't follow it on social media, but I suspect you may have for your other lesser known podcast. <laughs> that is fucking rude. <laughs> But it's not true, by the way, by the, the sta- numbers. The state, <laughs> the chancellor of the University of Tennessee, Dondi Plowman, she wrote a nasty letter. Oh, talk about and PR, PR masterclass. And then the state of Tennessee, vis a vis the attorney general and the Commonwealth of Virginia, which has nothing to do with the current NCAA investigation into the University of Tennessee, filed a lawsuit against the NCAA in the Eastern District of Tennessee. Antitrust. And so to. All the lawmakers out there that are listening, they're trying to get an injunction or a temporary restraining order, preliminary injunction. There's a there's a problem in state law, Braden. Uh-oh. TCA 49-7-2802A. After that or at the end, you might want to look into that. Might want to look into that. Are you giving the Attorney General of Tennessee advice at the end of a podcast? <laughs> Legal advice? I'm, I'm saying there's a problem. 49 7 a 
that might warrant a tempering so, of enthusiasm or at least a modest change to that statute. <laughs> I can't believe you just gave free legal advice. <laughs> because well, I've never seen a lawyer give anything away for free. I, the AG's record ain't too hot no, right now in, in, in the old courtroom. He's the NCAA offer in the courtroom. Eh, Scrimetti could use a win. Here, here's ultimately, this is one of the few shows I can say this on, and people hopefully listening will understand. Dondi Plowman in the University of Tennessee did what Bill Barr did to the Mueller report. It's the only it's the only show that I can say that on that my audience will understand what that was. Bill Barr came out and said, no collusion, no collusion two weeks ahead of time. And it completely tainted the entire perception of what Bob Mueller was going to put out where he found <laughs> lots of collusion. That is what Don DePalman in the University of Tennessee did. They came out and said they, they went scorched earth, took the moral high ground. It was a PR masterclass and how to take control of the narrative because also people agree with what Tennessee did which is, quote, helping families. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant strategy. It worked for Bill Barr. It's going to work for the University of Tennessee as well. 49-7-28-02-A. Get rid of that or the words <laughs> after it. <laughs> You're saying they're going to lose? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that was J.R. Holland, uh, of course, on Twitter. You can get to him there. Uh, and, of course, go to 8th and Roast, everybody. We'll see you on Tuesday morning. Thank you guys all for listening. Thanks to the mayor for coming out. Enjoy the Super Bowl, everybody. Enjoy Taylor. Enjoy my wife. Can't wait for Usher at halftime. Uh, and uh, Is Taylor going to make it to the game? I, I don't know. She's all over the world, like literally. The ambassador of Japan weighed in and talked <laughs> about it. I'm, gl I'm glad. Again, seems like a winning issue to go after football and Taylor Swift. Rate, review, and subscribe. Give us five stars. We would appreciate it. My name is Braden Gall. Thank you for listening. Have a good one.